Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. For me, the number one thing that people experiencing homelessness report is they want a bloody house. Now, here in Victoria in particular, our state government's investing in the housing first, um, and there is stock coming, but the system is broken. We still have people on waiting lists. I mean, notwithstanding the 116,000 people across Australia who are experiencing homelessness tonight. Those are the inspiring words of Ben Vasilio, CEO of Youth Projects. A short bit of housekeeping and we'll get right back to Ben. I got some great feedback from our recent listener survey, namely that you want to have more ways to be involved in the show. So I've opened the lines for you to record a short message of up to 15 seconds, send it in, and we'll play it during our upcoming episodes. Just send your audio message to hello at humansofpurpose.com with subject line message. You can send a message of support, tell me about a recent guest or episode you've loved and why, or just tell me something you've been inspired to do recently due to something mentioned on the show. Another way to support the show is to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever app you're using to listen to us on. This helps others find out about the show. I also read these out when they come in. It's wonderful to have added to our great growing Patreon family of supporters this past week, with Sally joining McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Misha Times 2, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will. Thank you, team. Your support helps us each and every week to keep posting up quality content. If you want to join our Patreon community and support the growth of Humans of Purpose, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose. Today, I'm thrilled to have Ben Vasilio, CEO of Youth Projects, on the podcast. Ben has had an amazing life and career story and is doing some truly game-changing work with youth and homeless and people experiencing homelessness around Melbourne. I really enjoyed talking with Ben and I think you'll enjoy our conversation too. Well, I am thrilled to have Ben Vasilio, CEO of Youth Projects, with me tonight. Welcome, Ben. No, thanks for having me, Mark. It's brilliant to have you. Um, I've been waiting for a catch-up since our coffee at your Hosier Lane uh, headquarters, which I look forward to talking about later. Uh, before we get started, why don't you take us all into your journey um, back as far as you'd like to go and how you end up sitting before me today? Sure. Well, it's um, even now just reflecting on that journey itself, I think I have to probably go all the way back. Um, so, you know, I was born into a relatively working class family, um, hardworking parents, wonderful people at a very early age. I grew up uh, in public housing down on the Mornington Peninsula, a beautiful little town in Hastings, but almost an enclave of just entrenched poverty as I look back now and not demonizing that community whatsoever, but um, it is what it was back then. We uh, had... Um, a normal public school upbringing, um, you know, lived in a small community, played some sport, but unfortunately things um, started to get a little bit challenging. And I talk a lot about in my life, forks appearing in the road. Um, sometimes I made great decisions. Sometimes I made terrible decisions. Sometimes decisions were made for me. Um, so dad left when I was about 12, which was incredibly pivotal because we didn't get a well all that long. So in essence, life got a little bit happier and easier for me. But unfortunately, around the same time, mum was diagnosed with cancer. Um, so at a very young age, I was kind of confronted with this sense of abandonment, uh, mum becoming quite unwell. Um, and in the first sort of year of mum's cancer journey, my dad also, who left a kind of sober, intelligent, hardworking man, 
um, returned into our lives, addicted to opioids, primarily heroin, um, and quite nasty and quite negative. So that was a real sort of challenge for us. And, and the reason why I go all the way back there is because it really gives uh, a foundation as to why I am who I am today. So fast forward a couple of years and, and notwithstanding um, that it was an incredibly challenging but also great couple of years, uh, my two sisters and I <clears throat> now at this point, uh, I was 16, my older sister was 19, and my little sister being 15, um, had mum diagnosed with terminal cancer and we lost her nine weeks later. So here we are, teenagers, literally looking around at each other without two bob to rub together, thinking, what are we going to do? And that was a really um, a pivotal fork in the road for us. Uh, and it was an opportunity for me to say, um, wow, we, no parents, stuff this, I'm going to have some fun. And we did. Didn't last very long. Um, because we realized we needed to work and pay bills and be responsible adults, which was incredibly challenging. So um, my older sister, who was at university at the time studying accounting, decided to defer. I left about six weeks into year 12, and we focused on making sure my little sister really could be the best that she could be. Um, it was at this point um, I started working full-time. I was really interested and connected to what was kind of happening in the world. I'd been studying Indonesian for quite some time. In 2002, which is when mum passed, was the same year as the Bali bombings. Mm. And I thought, wow, we what an escape. So um, my school counsellor um, from the year before um, had this great affliction with Bali and was travelling back and forth and started to share these stories with me about how since tourism had dropped post the, the terrorism attack, um, young children and, and families were making the decision to pull kids out of primary school because they couldn't afford to send them. Not enough tourists impacted trade, which was, mm. you know, the major tourism's the major industry in Bali. So um, we made this kind of deal that if we raised enough money, I could start my own project and we'd get over there and, you know, save the world for the first time, which is pretty exciting. So off I went, great escape, leave all of my trauma and my issues and my baggage at home and, and um, piss off to Bali. Um, and that was fantastic. I had a great time. We, we developed these amazing partnerships, um, uh, these great connections between schools here in essence and schools in Bali. And that was sort of fundraising and um, doing some amazing work together. And at the ripe old age of 20, my girlfriend at the time, who later on um, became my wife, uh, fell pregnant. Um, so here I was carrying on the sort of family um, torch, if you like. Um, let's continue to be teenage parents <laughs> and entrench ourselves further in poverty and make some <laughs> terrible decisions. Um, but anyway, um, needless to say, if my son listens to this one day, I apologise for letting you know this way that you were a mistake, but a wonderful mistake and we love you very much. <laughs> Best mistake. Best ever. mistake I've ever made. He's a wonderful 13 and a half year old now, um, far more intelligent than I'll ever be. It's amazing to me that a guy as young as you has a kid that age. I just look at you and I think, we're the same age. What's going on? It's a bit crazy. When sometimes, it's incredible. Look, I, I may look a little bit older than I am, but when even when I do say to people, I talk about the kids, my son's in your out, they kind of just look gobsmacked. And I'm, <laughs> I look back at them gobsmacked saying, yes, I know, I can't believe he made it too. <laughs> but, you know, Zane, who's my who's my um, my older son, amazing. So I sort of hark back to we're 20 and we're 22 and we're kind of, you know, this kind of struggle street, but we still want to do some amazing things. So I came home and, and picked up my first job as a youth worker. And I thought, look, I've done some, a bit of international work and I'm really connected to community. Um, but also there's a great deal of young people out there like me who won't get the opportunity to do something, something different with their lives. So yeah, I started as a youth worker. I worked for a local mob um, for a couple of years uh, and really started to set up what then became my career. And I had no idea. Mm. You know, between sort of 2007 and 2000 and 
um, well, let's say now 2019, 12 years, I think I've only applied for a job two or three times, mm. but I've gone from youth worker to CEO. Um, and um, so anyway, back at that, at that time, we working hard, um, my um, girlfriend at the time, um, we decided after about three years of raising this wonderful little toddler that never slept, challenged us incredibly, um, that we, if we were going to have a second child, we'd do it now and do it young and get it over and done with. So um, very quickly at the ripe old age of 24 and 26, along came our daughter Matilda, who's now nine and a half, and a wonderful, vivacious bombshell. Um, and we decided to get married. Um, and at that point I really started to settle into my career and think about, you know, we, um, we needed to, you know, get a mortgage and buy a house and do all those wonderful capitalist things. And, um, at that point I just stopped and, and checked in with myself and reflected and realized that I'd been going so hard on getting out of there, that mentality of getting out of West Park, the housing commission estate and setting up this different life and working hard and having children and making sure that they had a better life for themselves, um, that I'd stopped to actually never stopped to reflect on what it meant for me and who I was as a person. As a person. Um, and um, if I fast forward career-wise, I'd landed at Skills Plus. Um, I'd taken on the job as general manager at 24. Uh, we were a you know, delivering education, training and employment for some very vulnerable cohorts, primarily young people, um, people with a disability, uh, migrants and refugees. And we were doing some amazing stuff, particularly across the southeast of Melbourne. Heartland was Frankston. It was an amazing community to be involved with and, and something that was very close to my heart. So work, work, work. Uh, at that point, we'd started to merge with another organisation um, and life became incredibly busy. And so you went from youth work to uh, employment? Correct. Yeah, and was that kind of an easy move for you or kind of a logical one? Yeah, it was very seamless yep. because I, I'd worked in sort of youth employment as a case manager and then sort of um, started to rise the ranks, um, developing and designing place-based models that worked in places like Dandenong, Frankston, Rosebud, areas that I was committed to. And Skills Plus was growing at the same time quite organically, but also pursuing some growth because the models that we were implementing, particularly those that started with education and ended with employment, um, some really cool, innovative kind of VCAL programs based on the applied learning methodology were working. Yeah. Um, but I'll take you to this sort of final sort of juncture, almost fork in my personal life was when I did stop and reflect and go, what does all this mean for me? was probably the most challenging because what I'd realized is that I'd stowed away in my own mind for quite some time, for many, many years, and to the detriment of others uh, and those close to me, that I'd been questioning my own sexuality for a very, very long time. And here I was um, at sort of late 20s. I was married with two kids and I was almost done. I'd worked for 10 years tirelessly, not necessarily smart, but very hard, worked myself into the absolute ground and was tired. I'd put on a lot of weight. I wasn't taking care of myself. Um, I wasn't really leading a very healthy lifestyle and I had all of these questions starting to surface. And ultimately it came to the forefront of my brain that this was the next thing that I had to deal with. I had to kind of put everything on hold, put on hold being a parent, put on hold running this organisation, put on hold kind of all these different community roles I'd now taken on um, and actually start to work on myself. So, as I said, to the detriment of others, it was incredibly challenging. It was hard. Um, it was emotionally crippling um, to actually have to come out, not only to someone who you loved and someone that you had committed to, but your whole community. Yeah. 
And that was incredibly challenging. But again, for me, it was the next fork in the road to say, you know what, I choose this, I choose opportunity, I choose hope, I choose love, and I choose um, to trust in those people around me. So I think, again, that set me up to say, um, <laughs> sometimes I've made good decisions, sometimes I've made terrible decisions, but ultimately, um, I've believed in every single decision that I've made. So at that point, and how that relates, I suppose, to my career is um, around the same time, um, maybe fast forward a year, I was offered the CEO's job at Skills Plus. I was 30. I'd just come out. I'd had two young children. I'd worked hard for a very long time. And um, I was offered this opportunity and I took it. Absolutely loved it. Uh, and I was in that role for two years and we did some amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. But after seven and a half years of working with Skills Plus, a wonderful organization, um, in an environment dominated by, um, I would suggest, margin, um, cost centers, um, and almost dictated to by um, the hierarchy of um, government, which people we would focus on based on the revenue that was attached to the head. Yeah, right. And for me, that was like, I can't do this. I, I love focusing on economic participation, but for me, um, it's just not giving me what I'm looking for in my career. That, that's an amazing story and i think what sort of a few things stand out for me there one is um your deliberateness you know the way that you've dealt with things in time sort of you you tended to know along the journey when is the right time to deal with things and i'm not sure whether that's something you might have developed very early on in your life but it is just quite amazing Sure. I think maybe it, I would also probably classify it as a coping mechanism. Yeah. When you've got so many um, sort of plates spinning at once, yep. maybe um, in my in my head, consciously or subconsciously, I park things and sure. say, look, you know, I can only deal with X. I'll, I'll deal with that later. But the, I just think the, the sequential processing of these big things, like they're not small things. These are big <laughs> things. Um, like I just find the timing really kind of, um, I guess, well, first of all, I guess it ties into the other thing that's amazing that is being a CEO by 30 is not something that many people do and particularly people who have not finished year 12 and done all this <laughs> other meaningless crap and you know mucked around for a decade but I feel like if you asked any young person what they want to do like the ambitious ones that's what that's what they say yeah but maybe I don't feel like you were um were you like a very ambitious young person who <sighs> had those aspirations look I definitely ambitious yeah I, I don't think I ever had an aspiration to be a CEO yeah I just loved doing what I was doing yeah. and, and was very lucky to be recognized and rewarded throughout my career and constantly promoted um, I definitely didn't wake up at five years old and say, oh, I want to be the CEO of yep. Youth Projects. You weren't that person. No, I definitely was not that person. Yeah. I've just kind of always worked hard. I mean, really um, critically passionate about making sure that people had every opportunity to be the best that they yeah. can be. Does so, that come, I mean, the, the parallel that I draw from sort of the way you talk about work versus your own life is maybe the dedication that you placed upon giving your younger sister those opportunities. Is it sort of similar? Yeah, definitely. I think that, I mean, that cascades from our mum. She um, quite deliberately spoke to us about making sure that she gave us the opportunities that she may not have given herself. Uh, and that definitely comes um, from both of my sisters, particularly my older sister, mm. who I will just go back to the story, relevant or not, went back to university, yep. studied part-time for seven years, got her accounting degree. It's been running the same company for 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, she's an incredible force. So you've all got the same sort of bullish resilience Absolutely. to just get things done. And Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we call it the the, the Vassalo 
um, drive. Yep. We are fiercely competitive. <laughs> and the three of us are incredibly close still all these years on. We all live close together. We all um, have dinner every second Sunday. Yep. We're incredibly oh, that's close. Beautiful. But nobody, nobody wants to, you know, play a half-court game of basketball against the three of us. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which is always good fun. But, they're, yeah, they're, my sisters are incredible people. So what did you learn, I guess, in your early years or in your kind of your, your late 20s, early 30s about um, how to work with people? Because I think to, to get where you've got in such a short amount of time, you must be doing the right thing with people, treating them the right way and sort of with the right principles and approach. So I'm keen to learn a bit more about that. Sure. Um, it, well, I'll be really honest. In the early days, no, it was it was quite the opposite. I was incredibly um, forceful in my leadership style. Because I was good on the front line, and, and I'm very confident that I was a great youth worker and then a great case manager and a great team leader, I thought the best way to lead people was to tell them how you did it. And some personalities will follow, others won't. Um, but ultimately, there are a couple of different sort of um, critical junctures in my career where I watched astounding people lead and realize that they led through empowerment and they led through a strength-based, not a weak weakness-based approach. So for me, it was always about sitting down and looking at the team that I had and understanding what it is that they wanted to achieve. Why were you actually here? Let's not talk about the KPIs or the program logic. Let's just start the conversation with why are you here and what is it that you would like to achieve? Uh, and then we can find a connection back to the organization and back to my ultimate vision. Um, so I think always finding good people has been key because if you lead good people in a good way, they will lead the people behind them in a good way and so on and so on. That's, you know, the basic one-on-one of good organizational yep. culture, right? Yep. Um, what I did as well very early on was it was realized we never need a hundred bends. You know, weak people recruit similar mindsets and similar skill sets strong people recruit to their own weaknesses and i have lots of them i think we've spoken before about you know my sort of understanding that i'm very much an activist and i'm a pragmatist and what i need is theorists and reflectors uh, and i've learned that from other people around me so i continue to recruit people who challenge me um, and and people who will ensure that i continue to grow but also people that i can share and, and impart some wisdom upon that's amazing. I would say that you sound like you've um, put a lot of time into knowing yourself quite well as sort of an important, you know, that reflective part of, you know, knowing thyself, being thy best self, sort of a you know good precursor. Yeah, sure. I think um, I'm, I'm really keen to understand my impact on others mm. because my success now, particularly as a CEO and relative to youth projects, I mean, we're not huge, but we're kind of, we're 110 people, we're kind of 10 million turnover. You know, I'm not helping people find housing. I mean, although you'll find me in the clinic a lot and they kick me off the floor a lot because they love it down there, <laughs> I actually don't find people jobs anymore. I don't get people housing. I'm not delivering good health outcomes. I'm driving an organization and leading people that deliver that on my behalf. Um, so I'm always keen to understand that actually it's not just about me. Mm. It's about everybody around us. Um, but I suppose I've also had a fair share of um, influences in my life or people who I've seen and have demonstrated to me how I would never like to lead. Yeah. And I don't see that as a negative. I don't see it as pessimistic. I see it as real. Those people lead. They lead in a terrible fashion, in an autocratic sense. And I've gone, people don't enjoy that. I didn't enjoy that. I'm never going to lead people like that. Yeah, it's sort of like learn from, uh, lead or learn from inverse example. Yes, very much. You, you um, said that a hell of a lot more eloquently than I could put <laughs> I just, together. I, I'm good at summarizing things into like seven word <laughs> micro sentences. Um, so you touched a bit on youth projects. Maybe let's come back and um, rediscover it. 
talk a little bit about what Youth Projects does sure. and also your history with it. Okay, fantastic. So I've been at Youth Projects for two years. Wonderful organisation. It's been around um, now in its 35th year. Um, Youth Projects started uh, in the northwest of Melbourne, just outside of Broadmeadows, um, and was born from the Broadmeadows Task Force, which was a, a collective of government and community um, coming together to address some pr- fairly significant concerns around unemployment and, and health issues and whatnot. And this particular group got together to focus on young people. So over 35 years, the essence of Youth Projects has definitely been an early intervention and prevention framework for young people, looking through the lenses of um, their health and particularly, uh, and we still do now, looking at the social determinants of health, Mm -hmm. but also looking at economic participation and understanding that good skills, good education and a good job will have a great impact on that person's life. That's been our business. It's been our business for many years and we'll continue to work in that space. And it now is around 60 to 70% of what we do. Mm -hmm. But over time, as that particular um, sort of service response grew and grew and grew, right across, there's nine or 10 locations now across um, the Northwest in a hub and spoke model from headquarters in Glenroy. The organisation was asked to respond 10, 12 years ago, and this is kind of a bit of a personal connection mm-hmm. here now, um, 10 or 12 years ago to um, the um, the rise in opioid deaths, opioid-related deaths, so the heroin epidemic, mm-hmm. really. Heroin hits the streets of, of Melbourne. People start to die, hundreds. I mean, this is a Kennett era back then, you know, 400-plus um, people dying just from heroin yep. overdose in, in, in one year. Uh, I think there was certain times there were hit more than the road toll, just heroin alone. So Youth Projects um, delivering this wonderful model up in the northwest through a harm reduction lens, um, through um, a very intense early engagement lens, um, and through a holistic lens with no judgment, full stop. We're asked to respond in the CBD to the rise in people experiencing homelessness who are injecting drugs. So fast forward to 2019, we now have a world-class premier primary health clinic on Hosea Lane, Melbourne's beautiful Hosea Lane, <laughs> one of our famous landmarks, 10,000 people, tourists um, lining up and down the laneway every day. Um, we run um, six days a week and seven nights outreach, a free primary health clinic, which is also a safe space for people experiencing homelessness. And with some brand ambiguity here around youth projects, it's actually for adults. It's a space for adults. The service has matured and grown with the people. So we have a team of rotating GPs, a team of rotating nurses, a mental health response team. Um, we have a dual diagnosis team. You've got the showers and everything as well. Yep. The drop-in space has everything that someone um, sleeping rough or in transitional housing would need. Um, showers, laundry, toilets, charge your phone, use the internet, make some food. We've got therapeutic interventions throughout therapy, music therapy. We have a wonderful social enterprise um, and we have some supporting programs. And that's the cafe, the social enterprise? It is, yeah. So And the um, op shop. And the op shop, yep. yeah. Um, great opportunity to talk about good to go. Uh, we started our social enterprise four or five years ago, right uh, on the corner of Hosier Lane and Rutledge Lane. Uh, it's a wonderful um, safe space for young people from our programs in the Northwest um, to come down and build employability skills, basically, whilst working in a very fast-paced environment. Um, and, I mean, it's everything from the employment preparation to the hospitality skills, but to the very simple fact that very vulnerable young people up in the Northwest would rarely travel down on the train into Melbourne CBD. Mm. So travel training, hygiene, the basics, getting them involved in their community, it's absolutely awe-inspiring. I think we've had 26 young kids graduate from that program this year. Mm. And uh, I think with a small batch still working in the cafe, our current 
um, rate of success and what we determine success to be is then going back to full-time study or full-time employment mm. is around 75%. That's amazing. So you put a bit of time into tracking that as well. 100%. Impact's incredibly important to us. Mm. Um, and that's determined by our internal outcomes framework. Mm. But it, impact is not just in the raw number of those getting a job or getting training. It's also about, you know, are we markedly improving their well-being? Um, are we um, ensuring that if they are enduring some um, mental health crisis or or do they have the resources around that mental illness to have that social connectedness? Um, so we've got a couple of other range of indicators in our outcomes framework, but it's a highly successful model. We, we love how you do it. We've got a uh, – I shouldn't say this, but I will. We keep a copy of the Youth Project's impact report on our shelf at Task Force and <laughs> we kind of here. look at it and say this is what a great impact report should be like. It's very cool. Yeah. We're very on point and um, – Things like what you just said, so seeing what people do after they experience the service as distinct from just how many people enter the service being sort of, you know, a real mark of quality and... Yeah, sure. And I think also that transition from, you know, understanding the difference between contribution and attribution. Yeah. And we've talked about this a lot at Youth Projects in my time, sort of it's been two years. I mean, I take us back, we didn't have an outcomes framework. We were definitely delivering outcomes, achieving them. Our data and evidence was pretty cool. It was okay, but we weren't necessarily able to capture it, analyze it, and then articulate our impact. Um, so we've been on this journey now to, I mean, we've stripped all the way back to our theory of change. You know, we've unpacked these marvelous programs and said, okay, what is it that we want to achieve? Where is it that we're going? How are we going to do that? And then how are we going to understand the impact that we've created? Mm. The thing that I like a lot about youth projects is we've taken it one step further, particularly in an environment and an economy where nonprofits are, are almost burdened with more bureaucracy than the corporate sector. And I'm happy to be challenged by anyone on that, but I think so. Um, but we're also having to demonstrate economic return on investment, not just social. So now we're able to say, okay, well, here's the service. Here's what we delivered. Here are the outcomes that we achieved. Here's how much it cost you. And if it's a government-funded program, here's what we saved or returned to the economy long-term. Mm. So I'll give you some examples if I can. Go ahead. So we deliver um, a street-based night nursing program. It's after-hours primary care. Uh, it's the only one of its kind. Um, we have two nurses on patrol five nights a week in Melbourne CBD delivering um, medical support from their backpack. And, it, and you know what? Sometimes it's just social support, but um, we do everything, wound care, We've um, delivered a baby. I'm amazed that this is a thing what you're telling me right now. Yeah. <laughs> this is something that you do. It's, it's just, it's so cool. It is. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, it is amazing. And in partnership with some amazing funders, we've been able to continually deliver this program. On average, um, each night on Melbourne CBD, we deliver around 20 contacts. So 20 engagements face-to-face, -face. and they can range from everything um, from a, um, a mental health intervention to just a social connection to I need a blanket and some food um, to I need a referral to the GP the next day to some wound care or whatever it may be. What we did was then start to proportion the number of engagements or interventions which prevented an emergency department presentation. Now, we've had a number of those and started to then map, okay, well, if we think about return on investment, we're delivering a street-based night nursing contact at around $56. So $56 versus an emergency department presentation, which on public health data at the moment is about 488 On admission, it's 868 mm -hmm. You know, you start to think, okay, let's have a social and an economic conversation. Mm -hmm. That's where I'd like to take youth projects. Well, it sounds like you're heading there already. Um and that's 
it's always nice to work with things where you know the the value of what the intervention is preventing as well. That's that's kind of a nice sweet spot to be in. I'll say um, when I went to meet you for a coffee that other week, I was amazed by the scene of just how many homeless people were around uh, youth projects and the cafe and interacting and inside and really everywhere in your service centre with with the health. But um, to see you sort of being so hands-on as a CEO, you came out and you had a coffee from the social enterprise, you high-fived multiple people who were sitting around the premises, they all called out to say hi, you stopped to chat with many of them. That must be a really nice feeling to be able to sort of be that um, part of the community that you're working with and serving every day. Definitely. it's um, It drives me and I'm incredibly passionate about the people that we exist to serve. Um, but, you know, look, if I actually take it back to the very reason why I work in this sector, some people will say it's unhealthy to define yourself by the work that you do. Mm-hmm. But I know it's cliched. If you love the work that you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I, I, love I totally it. agree with that. Yeah. And it's incredible. It's incredibly... Um, important for a CEO to never be lost in the corporate jargon of sustainability and governance and whatnot. And and I won't take away from the fact they're all incredibly important. <laughs> of course, they're incredibly important. Um, but for me to be able to sit in my office and look at whether it be a budget or a governance charter or a funding report or a risk report or a quality report, but actually know that the number I'm looking at is person X on the floor that I spoke to last week and we hugged and cried together that when they finally got into transitional housing. You know, but, for me, I can is, connect um, those dots. Is this ever a two-edged sword, being so close to the passion or the source of the passion that drives your work? Definitely. It makes it incredibly challenging, right? It makes it harder to make tough decisions. Yes, and I, I suppose maybe it would be hard to sort of see people um, sleeping rough and going through incredibly um, tumultuous situations and crisis a sure. lot of the time. How well, do you deal with that? Are you a person who's, you know, resilient and able to sort of just – um, cope or are you somebody who connects and sort of cries with the person? Sure. Look, a bit of both. Mm. I, I think I, I've, I've struck a balance. Not sure whether it's healthy or mm. not. But my response to that is if you've ever slept on the cold, dark slab um, of a concrete porch, you get it, right? So I've got experience. I'm not saying I was ever long-term homeless. Um, but when I see someone sleeping on the street, I feel it. I get it. I connect to it. I know what it's like to feel at your absolute end. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would consider myself to be incredibly resilient. Um, I would also consider myself to be incredibly connected, um, sometimes more sympathetic than empathetic, which gets me into a bit of trouble in all realms of my life, not just a work one. Um, but what it does is drive me to make really strong, good decisions for my organisation. So sometimes it's going to be tough. Sometimes I need to make the tough calls. But ultimately, if I run a lean, viable, sustainable high-quality organisation will be able to deliver more outcomes for more people. And what do the people you talk to, the homeless people using your services, tell you they want? Are they saying that they want things that they're not currently able to get? Sure. Uh, look, there's a, a, such a wide and diverse range of people who are experiencing homelessness and all types of homelessness, whether it be primary, tertiary, secondary. Um, some people are just living in, in sort of unstable housing, not just just, they're living in unstable housing, some in transitional housing, some are sleeping on the streets. Um, so I think that to represent the diverse range of people experiencing homelessness is quite hard. In our organisation, particularly in the living room, it's the basic necessities. 
I'm told every single day, I wouldn't know what to do without the doctor. I wouldn't know what to do. I don't know where to have a shower, where to get just a warm cup or in the mornings. Mm. Um, I wouldn't know where to um, engage with the counsellor here that I get for free. Where would I be able to, um, you know, store my belongings, those kinds of things. Mm. Um, For me, the number one thing that people experiencing homelessness report is they want a bloody house. Now, here in Victoria in particular, our state government's investing in the housing first, um, and there is stock coming, but the system is broken. We still have people on waiting lists. I mean, notwithstanding the 116,000 people across Australia who are experiencing homelessness tonight, there's another 86,000 sitting on the social housing register. We know, I mean, if anybody follows the Everybody's Home campaign, we know that if we deliver 500,000 more houses in the next 10 to 20 years, we can solve homelessness in Australia. But behind that needs to be a wraparound, connected and holistic model of care for people to entrench them in a home. As opposed to being entrenched in homelessness, Mm. we need to entrench them in the cycle of living in a home. So that's the mental health response. It's the critical primary health response. It's the connection to the community and where we're going to move them. So I think housing, 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 housing plus is incredibly important. And that's what people want ultimately. That's fascinating stuff. So we might just jump in quickly to our Patreon Humans Purpose Plus segment where we get to go a bit deeper with you, Ben, and ask you some uh, pressing questions. Fire away. Too pressing. Um, first one, what is your morning and evening routine? Okay, so let's start with the fact that I am not a morning person. <laughs> so morning routine is up, double espresso, um, news items, socials, check in with the kids, um, double espresso for the second time round, um, and generally just a five-minute chill out with the dogs before I hit the emails. I don't like to exercise in the morning. It's not my thing. Um, that makes two of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite the opposite to my partner. My partner's kind of up, you know, we get up at the first alarm at about half five uh, and he's out the door to F45. Yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 I want, no, no. I want what he's having. <laughs> <laughs> um, so mornings, very calm. Uh, I live out in the suburbs and commute to the city. So I do leave quite early and I like to have sufficient time um, to jump on the emails and just really make sure that I, I get my day structured right if I'm on the train. Uh, and if I'm driving in, it'll be, you know, a podcast or something just to really set a, a positive um, frame of mind. Nighttime is where all the best stuff happens, right? So um, at night, depending on my schedule, I have my kids sort of a couple of nights during the week and all of their commitments. Um, I play netball once a week as well. I love my mixed netball. <clears throat> but a typical night we get home, I like to do all the cooking. Uh, absolutely love to cook. Make sure that I'm prepared to do that. Um, and if it's winter, it's a Pinot Noir. And if it's summer, it's a Sauvignon Blanc. Wow, you've got it all figured out. <laughs> what do you like to cook? Um, anything really. I mean, I have a sort of um, quasi-Macedonian European heritage. So anything um, carbohydrates <laughs> is kind of my thing. Um, but of late, I'm really getting to seafood. So I make a mean Sri Lankan curry. Oh, wow. Uh, and I've just mastered my own sort of um, – uh, original um, bread curry paste. So I'm pretty happy with that. That's awesome. What is the best thing you've added into your life or routine in the past six months? Uh, okay, that's a really that's a really good question. In the last six months, um, I would probably suggest um, an earlier morning with my partner because I'm not a morning person. Um, he gets up significantly earlier than what I would have. Um, getting up and having at least half an hour or 40 minutes to myself 
um, with nobody around, um, you know, the birds quackling in the background and just having some downtime to really um, just be myself, not be Ben the CEO, not be Ben the dad and just chill, have my double espresso, relax, read the news if I want to, sit down with Angus, our beautiful little dog. Um, and that's really some, some really critical self-care. Well said. Who is currently inspiring you, if anyone? Okay, that's a really um, interesting question. There's a couple um, out there that are really inspiring me. Um, I think this is of no um, record of my um, political, um, what's the word I'm looking beliefs. for? Beliefs. Yep. Whatsoever. But a, a, a wonderful politician and Fiona Patton. Um, who is of the Reason Party, the leader of the Reason Party, formerly the Sex Party. But what I love about Fiona is that she declares um, what she's passionate about. Um, She um, articulates incredibly well what she's trying to achieve. She consults incredibly well across the community. And then she goes hammer and tong. And she will fight every layer of the patriarchy until she achieves it. I think she's incredibly um, intelligent. uh, And I think she's a great campaigner. Well said. Um, what is one book that everyone should read? Oh, very good question. Um, I've just started, would you believe, um, George Orwell's 1984. Oh, how timely. Um, I, I can't say, <laughs> I can't give a full recommendation because I'm only a couple of chapters in, mm. but I believe if you come back and ask me in two months' time, I'm going to give that the recommendation. I, I will ask you because I think that's such an important book. Okay. Um, I don't want to make any spoilers. So I'll stop talking now. But- <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very early in. I'm very, very early in. Yeah. Um, look, I, I really, um, I absolutely um, loved There's No Going Back. Now, I have to apologize because the author escapes me, but it's an Australian true story of a woman who who married a guy who was from Turkey, um, and she found herself in the midst of a terrible custody battle, um, and an Australian news crew helped her flee Turkey, grab her child on boat, and arrive in Greece. You know, it was this, this two-, three-year-long journey. Uh, I'll send you the recommendation. It's called There's No Going Back, the story of grit, determination, mm-hmm. Uh, and resilience was incredibly inspiring. Yeah, please do send that. That sounds fascinating. Um, is there a quote or expression that you try to live by? Um, yes, and it's mine, if I may. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, and I'm that committed to it. It's tattooed on my right foot. Really? Yes. Wow. Uh, and it's something that I use with my children and, and, and often in the workplace as well, and it's just simply this. Be the best that you can be. And I usually stop there and I pause and then I say, not what others think that you can be not what your negative self tells you that you can't be. You know in your heart of hearts the best that you can be. Do that. Just focus on that and you will achieve that. That's brilliant. That's actually brilliant. Um, I think I need to get a tattoo somewhere. (laughs) somewhere. I need a quote by myself first. (laughs) Um, What is one thing you think people should do more and one thing you think people should do less? Sure. Okay. So do more, have fun. Right, I mean, the very essence of our lives um, is to enjoy it. I believe uh, there's all of the different spin-offs. I want to have an impact. I want to be positive. I, you know, want to do all these amazing things. But have some bloody fun, right? Um, and I say this in the workplace all the time. If the job's boring, change it. You know, make it exciting. Do something fun. I love to get out with friends. I love to get away for the weekend. A good balanced, healthy, happy Ben is great to everyone, whether that be the CEO, the dad, the friend, the partner, whatever it may be. It's the best Ben that Ben can be. Exactly. Well yeah. done. Well done. Um, so I've do that. I've your foot quote. Is that weird? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, considering I've got shoes and socks on, so you haven't seen it, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Do less. Okay, so here's my hot tip for do less. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful saying, and it is this. Listen to hear, not listen to respond. As opposed to going to a conversation wanting to put your case forward, what you believe, what you feel, almost defensive in a sense. When you go into a conversation, listen to what the person is trying to tell you. Watch them, read them, try and connect with them and understand them. Um, that would be my hot tip. Just we need to stop listening to responding. We need to we need to stop being so divisive and and on the defense all the time and be a little bit more receptive to what other people have to say. That's brilliant. Um, this one is about an unpopular view or opinion. <laughs> what is one thing you believe that others don't? Um, in my inner circle, I I believe that money does actually make the world go round, right? So a lot of people will say that, you know, you can't take money to your grave. Money doesn't mean all that much. But whether you like it or not, we live in a capitalist-driven society, a capitalist-driven economy, mm. and it's challenging, right? Well, you just try and go somewhere and pay with walnuts and see how far you Correct. Go. That's yep. right. I mean, ultimately, money is just made up pieces of paper, right, Correct. that we print. It's like- a agreed fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Good point. Um, but it does make the world go round. Yeah. I mean, now we can sit here and talk about how we fight the very constructs of this society, but we're talking generational change here, revolutions, in mm. fact. Um but money actually does make the world go around. And whether you like it or not, if you can articulate to those people who are key decision makers around you in all facets of your life, how it makes economic sense, you'll have more people at the table than you will if you didn't. Brilliant. Um, we're close. How does a sense of purpose influence how you live your life? If I don't feel like I'm, if I don't feel like I'm having a positive impact, uh, I'll stop and reflect immediately in everything that I do, whether that might be my kids' netball, the way that I recycle. I mean, I'm not perfect at any of this, mm. but if I don't feel like I'm leaving a positive trail behind me, a positive impact, um, then I'll stop and reflect or I won't do it at all. It is the very essence of who I am. I, I want to do things that will lead a lasting impression um, that will make people think and challenge the way that we move forward as a society. Have you thought at all about how you might um, enhance your impact in, in the year to come? Sure, I have. Um, so I have um, recently um, been very um, lucky and I'm incredibly um, excited to announce that I have won the Stanford Australia Foundation's um, scholarship to attend Stanford in the US next year. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so each year they choose one um, CEO from the nonprofit space or executive to attend an executive leadership program. So my focus in 2020 is getting over to Stanford. I'll also go on a study tour of like-minded um, North American-based organizations and really harness um, what is happening in terms of international best practice, particularly in the harm reduction space uh, and in the youth intervention space and, and hopefully bring some really cool ideas back to Melbourne. That's amazing. Ben, thanks for being such a good guest for the Patreon Plus section. You're, you're not off the hook yet for the Humans of Purpose <laughs> podcast section, though, so we'll jump back to that um, now and maybe talk a little bit more about homelessness. So you gave me a really good understanding before that, that section on, um, you know, what, is, what are some of the things you hear from your community and your clients. Um, where do we need to go next as, as a as a um, city as a society I mean you mentioned before the housing first model is is that kind of the the main 
thing that we need to do? Or would you say that there are other things that we really need to prioritize? Sure. The, <clears throat> if I think about both ends of the spectrum, so let's focus on the early intervention space. So we've got hundreds of thousands of people um, in chronic rental stress. Um, we have hundreds of thousands of people, if not um, more than millions, living underneath the poverty line. There's a great range of things that we need to do. Um, a number of people will say, and this is going to be somewhat of an unpopular opinion, that the system is broken, Mike. Mm. Um, I don't believe the system is broken. I believe the system is working as it was designed, and it is designed to meet the needs of people who already have money. Right, So that's a big challenge in itself. Mm-hmm. I could name 20 societal constructs or public policy initiatives that we need to absolutely dismantle and start again. But what I'm going to do is break it down to three different things. The first thing that we need to do is we need to raise the rate. Um, the Australian Council of Social Services, the Victorian Council of Social Services, we'd have four of the big consulting firms come out. Um, our whole sector is saying raise the bloody rate. And not raise it by $75. This is a new start that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about $75. I'm talking about $100 Mm -hmm. minimum. We need to get people off the poverty line. Um, It is costing people more than their new start allowance pays to live right now. And I'm talking to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people across the country. So let's just raise the rate, right? We're a wealthy country. We're in surplus. Let's just put it up. Pretty simple to me. Politically, um, not so popular, but bad luck. Let's just do it. The second thing that we need to do is we need to think about um, what housing looks like for all different people. So um, when we when we think about people who are incredibly vulnerable, we, we think about people who are coming from public housing or people who are coming from um, intermittent renting contracts, we need to think about if we were to give them longevity, and by longevity I mean um, reduced rent, with government bond assistance long-term and take that stress out of people's lives. Mm. If we could say to people who were experiencing very low income rates, you know, significant challenges in their life, that's a plethora of whether it be mental health issues or trauma or whatever it might be, we're just going to make sure that your tenancy agreement is sound, cheap, and good to go for the next few years. Let's take that off you. Let's just take that off your mind. So I think that what we need to do is invest in longer-term leasing for people who are incredibly vulnerable. Um, and the last thing we need is jobs. We need jobs at all level. We need jobs at all skill levels and we need jobs to pay more. The uh, minimum wage is on the way up, which is fantastic. I think we're headed in the right direction here in Australia, but we need more jobs um, where people need them most. We have people who are commuting cross town, cross country for terribly paying jobs. We need more jobs and we need to invest and have the government and private industry invest in generating jobs back out in community, which I think is incredibly important. Very well said. I can't remember who said it, but um, an expression that I like to think about in terms of uh, equality and fairness and good character of a moral society is that the mark of a strong society is how we treat its most vulnerable people. Mm. And I think if we had to look at how we're treating our most vulnerable right now, it would not be a very good grade for Australia. No. So that's definitely an area we need to focus more on. What is going to be coming up for um, youth projects um, that you're going to be doing soon that you're excited about? if there's something new or a range of initiatives? Sure. I, look, we have a couple of things that are happening that are really, really exciting. <clears throat> um, particularly for us, um, we're looking at the future of primary health care services in Melbourne CBD. You know, right now we'll have um, probably around three to 400 people in Melbourne and around Melbourne's fringe sleeping rough on the streets. That's sleeping rough. That's not homeless. It's not people in transitional housing. There's not people in crisis accommodation. That's not um, women fleeing domestic violence, staying in a motel. We're just talking just people sleeping rough. Um, we have a, a pretty critical collaborative of great thinkers coming around the table at Youth Projects to say, okay, how do we help 
very vulnerable people experiencing homelessness, A, navigate the service system, uh, and B, get to housing quicker. So we can keep them safe in the living room. We can we can make sure that they get a shower, they get to see the doctor, they can get all the basics that they absolutely deserve, right? Um, but how do we get stronger pathways out of homelessness and into housing with better health outcomes? So we've got a pretty cool project around what um, the living room that we call it, that's our primary health clinic, what that space is going to look like in 10, 15 years' time. Um, so that's something that we're working on, which is pretty exciting. Up in the northwest of um, Melbourne, we're working on um, our youth engagement program. We have gone back to what I call the traditional 80s. So we have designed a very traditional youth work response where we have built a, a really cool custom camper trailer, an old kind of wind-up, uh, what's well, new, but it looks like an old wind-up pop-top camper trailer. We've got a bus of qualified, amazing um, youth practitioners that go out and target the most vulnerable hotspots in Melbourne's northwest, the train stations, the, the car parks. Um, the skate parks, the back end of schools, um, and we're talking to and engaging young people with no requirement. Let's just talk about how we can keep you safe. What is it that you need from us? Why are you out here on the street? Um, we've we've seen those particularly basic but incredibly and fundamentally important conversations lead to some amazing outcomes, and we have some big plans to take that program right across the state over the next two years. A very, very simple, lean, low-cost operation that says to a young person, we are here, this is a safe space, let's talk, let's chat, but let's get you engaged back in some sort of support service with a view of getting you back into school or into a job. Because we know that higher education and greater economic participation is good for young people. And I just want to paint a picture for anybody listening to understand that in this one particular patch that we're working, it's the city of Hume. So we're talking the top end of Brunswick, kind of going up into Glenroy, uh, up to the outer regions of Sunbury. Just in that one region, a sort of 35, 40-kilometre stretch, there's 2,977 young people aged between 15 and 21, not currently in a job or school, 3,000 mm. young people mm. in one region. Um, and we put two work youth workers in that van, 12 months ago, and they've engaged over 300 of them. Now, we start to think about those 300 young people, what we could do if we actually built more resources and put more people on the road. So if you see a youth projects van heading down the Hume Highway, stop, say hello, uh, and offer some support. Because- Honk twice and put your hands up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> good one, good one. No, that's um, very exciting work. Um, one thing I think a lot of our listeners will be wanting me to ask you, and I know that it's been on my mind, is just sort of about your your leadership journey and becoming the leader that you are today because um, I'm sure many people would want to um, learn from your wisdom or insights around the things that they should be doing to sort of help them on their, on their way to um, maybe going from a frontline worker or service worker or, you know, sort of um, – mid-level point to being a senior executive or a leader of an organization? Sure. The first thing is, um, I would say, is never stop learning, but that doesn't just relate to book smarts, right? Look to the people around you um, to understand what's happening um, in, I suppose, in your sector. Um, Look for the innovators and don't necessarily look at what they're doing, look at how they're doing it and why they're doing it, the conversations that they're having. I've always thought to myself, look through everything that you do, not to continue to do what you're doing because you've always done it. What can we do next? Mm. Um, 
you have to have a balance in terms of your leadership journey of generating ideas and generating revenue. It's pretty simple, right? Uh, it doesn't matter what business you're in. You've got a turnover margin. You've got to invest in the future. And the way that I do that is I connect to consumers and I connect to the best practitioners in the business. I find the best, the highest performing, the, the best connected to the consumers. Uh, and I talk to them about what's actually happening. What is it? What is the challenge that we're facing and what's coming? Um, and I always find an economic argument to why we should invest in that. And that's why funders like me, I suppose. Well, I hope they all like me. <laughs> they seem to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's hope they continue to fund us long term. And then the final piece is be a moderator, right? So find what the consumers want. Find what the funders are willing to fund. Find the common ground. Build a service response. You can never be unsuccessful. Um, that's in a service element, right? Then in the rest of your business, in terms of you know building some commercial acumen, um, you've got to understand the levers and the drivers in your business that generate outcomes. Um, but there's a variety of different stakeholders in our organisations. There's, there's the, the board who are, who are constantly thinking about governance and sustainability and, and high-quality services. Then you've got the external stakeholders, the funders who want return on investment. They want to make sure that you're, you're highly compliant and driven by the contract. You've got the staff who want an amazing experience and, and, and great outcomes. Um, collectively, if you actually bring all of that together and explain to each of the stakeholders what all the stakeholders want, they get it. So I, I suppose what I'm coming to is be honest. Be honest. Um, we can't deliver all things to all people. Um, so be honest with all of your stakeholders. And what do you say about the role of mentors or mentorship in one's journey? Sure. Incredibly important. I've been lucky to have um, two or three really solid mentors. Um, all three of them just happen to be amazing um, women across a number of different sectors. And I think it's incredibly important. You've Mentors have to be somewhat different to you though. Try not to have a mentor who who shares very similar um, personality trait because you don't want them just tapping you on the head and rubbing your ego and yeah. telling you being a great, you know, a great leader. That you need to be challenged. You need someone that thinks a little bit differently and someone that you can trust because they need to be able to critique you, right, and provide some advice. So I've been lucky to have two or three, um, two that continue on with me now and I'll constantly look to for many years. Uh, hopefully they'll continue to put up with me. But they provide and they shed a different light because they're not in the trenches. They're not in the day-to-day with me. They're off doing their sort of own thing, fighting their own good fight. Um, so the role of, of mentors for me always um, challenges me, um, puts my ego in check, which is incredibly important, um, and stimulates different thought processes, which I think is incredibly important. That's amazing. Look, thank you so much for sharing your time and insights tonight, Ben. It's been uh, magical on many fronts for me and I'm sure our audience. How can people uh, learn more about um, you and youth projects and how can they connect with you if they wanted to? Sure. So, um, I mean, Youth Projects is pretty simple. Um, on all good web, um, web platforms and socials, you just type in Youth Projects Melbourne and you'll find us. Uh, we've got a strong following on Facebook, get behind us, Instagram uh, and LinkedIn. You'll find me on LinkedIn. Um, just Google Ben Vassalo at Youth Projects and you'll find me. I'd love to get in touch. I love uh, and I am constantly stimulated by great conversations. Uh, I'm open to conversations with all people of all backgrounds, of all abilities. Um, so, you know, I, I actually just reflected on what I just said. I basically said, Google me. That's terrible. <laughs> no, I think what you said is actually very polite and very welcoming because many people, when they hear, you know, uh, someone saying, oh, here's my LinkedIn, they give a vibe that they don't actually want people to connect with them on LinkedIn. Right. You gave the opposite impression, which is really nice. And I hope you're inundated. 
Yeah, look, and so do I. To be perfectly honest, I'll just give you a quick snapshot of the last week. I mean, I, I've connected with uh, a number of different CEOs that yeah. we're kind of strategically partnering with. I met with a young lady last week who reached out to us on Facebook who's running a knitting club and raising mm-hmm. money for us. Uh, I've got um, Rotary happening tomorrow, a large club and a small club. I met with a family who came in from Warrnambool a couple of weeks ago. I'm, I'm open. I, well, I'd love well, you to are, connect. You are extremely well networked. And I, I mean, maybe that's something I forgot to bring up, so maybe I'll just position a last kind of question. <laughs> here now that you raise it i saw your linkedin you got something like four thousand connections um and you seem to sort of put people around you and and you seem to have a real love of people and connection is that sort of what drives you too yeah definitely i, I didn't know i had that many yeah. I, i'm just really interested in sharing my journey but sharing in others journeys yep. um I, I definitely love to rally the troops if you will i love people uh, and I'm ignited by groups of people who are passionate and share interest in, in similar topics. So um, whether it be LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, I don't care what the social is, I'm interested in it. I want to connect with people. I thrive on on human contact. Um, and I'm also interested in opposing views. Mm. Like, you know, shoot me a line, give me a call if you, you know, don't necessarily believe in what I have to say because I reckon I could learn from that conversation. Yes. Um, hit Ben up if you don't, if you don't respect capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's going to be the one, doesn't it? Yeah, that definitely needs to be over a pin on while, let's be honest. Thanks so much for your time. Cheers. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 